Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hello and welcome in to episode two of the QB11 show. I'm Doug Scott and I'm joined, of course, by QB11. QB, how are you doing today? I'm doing well. How are you doing, Doug? I'm doing great. I'm excited to get episode two rolling. Yeah, me too. We have a lot of good topics this week to cover. All right. With that, let's get right into it. First off, the Ducks secured a new commitment from uh, four-star safety Cody DeCambra. He's a on-three consensus four-star, number 22 safety in the country out of Bishop Gorman High School in Las Vegas. QB, what can you tell us about Cody? Yeah, Cody's an interesting one because I think I've talked about this before um, on the boards. I have an inherent bias uh, towards longer safeties. Um, I just think the matchup against tight ends can be a lot easier with longer safeties. Uh, some it lends itself to being a little bit more rangy and having a little bit more disruptive length. Uh, but when it comes to Cody, it's interesting. He was he was invited to the opening finals in 2019 as an eighth grader. So he's the first eighth grader to ever get invited to the finals. And uh, he put up some pretty ridiculous testing numbers for an eighth grader in that in that setting because they do all electronic testing there. He ran a four five three forty. He had a four flat shuttle, a thirty nine point eight inch vert. Um, and he was only 159 pounds and five nine and a half. But they list him now currently at six foot 175. So he's he's a smaller guy, kind of in the ilk of maybe a uh, Verone McKinley. But I do think that his frame is going to allow for him to get heavier, play probably closer to 195, 200 by the time he's really playing meaningful snaps. But what you see with him when you watch him is that the movement skills. Like they translate. They're, he's not just a kid that tests at a high level, but really struggles to play with good speed and play speed. Um, he's got the flexibility to play deep safety. He shows really good instincts when he's deep um, for uh, cutoff angles, whether that's in coverage or in the run game. He's not over or under running plays uh, and run support. He's a very willing tackler, which is good to see. Like if you're projecting out a kid that's maybe a little smaller frame wise, um, having him be a willing tackler and an able tackler and someone who really understands angles and leverage in the open field is important. Uh, where he really excels, though, I think, and I think it might be a future home for him, is in coverage. He drops down in the nickel a couple times on his on his Bishop Gorman film, and he's able to uh, backpedal and stay square and then, and then flip his hips and track with guys almost like a corner. Um, and it makes sense because he's got more of a corner frame. He's he's even-cut kid. He doesn't have this high waist that makes it harder for him to transition. So... I think he gives a lot of flexibility. I would prefer that he plays deep safety only because we haven't really had a bunch of great cover guys that have played deep recently. Um, his his testing speed, even as an eighth grader, I'm sure hopefully it's improved at this point um, as he's matured into his body and trained more, was was good enough to be a high-level college athlete at the time. So the, the, the testing athleticism is there. Uh, the instincts appear to be there. And from everything I've heard from people that have interacted with him, he's a great kid. So I'm really excited about DeCambra. Uh, he, he's 
a lot like Avery Patterson in my mind, but he's a much more fluid athlete. Like Patterson, they played him at corner a couple times early in his career, and he just could not transition. Like he was really, really stiff. He was geared forward. Can't DeCambra can change directions and go in any direction really quick. So uh, I think he's going to be a, a very, very useful player for us in the back half of the defense, whether that's at nickel or deep safety, uh, probably sooner than later. Excellent. Thank you, QB. So as we work our way through the different position groups, episode by episode, it makes sense to, to continue on with safeties today. So what other safeties on Oregon's board, you know, should to our listeners be looking at? And, um, you know, can you tell us a little bit about any of them? So the other guy that's got an official visit scheduled currently is uh, Tyler Turner, from sa- uh, who's a safety from Texas, six foot, 180 pounds from San Antonio, uh, was committed to Coach Pallage at Baylor uh, reopened his commitment when Pallage left, and now it's, it seems to be an Oklahoma-Oregon battle. He's got visits scheduled to Oklahoma for this weekend, the, uh, starting today, and then Oregon for the 24th, which is our big visit weekend, the last week, visit weekend before the dead period. So um, I think this is one that Oregon stands in a good spot for based on what on the reporting by Justin Hopkins over on, on Oregon's on-three-site scoop duck. Uh, it, from a, as a player, he being longer than than DeCambra is more in the mold of like of what we would probably typically view as a safety frame like six foot 180 now this kid's gonna have no problem being 200 pounds uh he's got a true deep safety skill set which again I cannot emphasize enough has been something that we have not done a good job under the last staff of recruiting um we had Javon Holland and Vron McKinley was kind of a tweener that had really good instincts and worked out back there but we haven't recruited a bunch of six foot plus guys with good range, good instincts for playing uh, single high or two high safety coverages um, with the flexibility to come up and support in the run game. We've recruited a lot of box safeties, a lot of guys who kind of thrive uh, when, when they can be added in as an additional run defender, but have struggled uh, whenever they put they're put in space to cover ground and to play with, with good, with good instincts. Something that uh, I learned when I was younger was that, that range is the quotient of speed and instinct. So just being fast doesn't make you rangy. Just being instinctive doesn't make you rangy. You have to have both. If you don't have both, you're going to have a hard time getting to the spot. Uh, he shows good hash-to-hash range when playing uh, the single high safety. He can come down and cover. He's a very physical defender in the run game. I, I really like Turner. Again, I, I think that Pal- I probably have more faith in Palage as an evaluator of talent than maybe anybody on the staff. Um, just based on the types of guys that were turning into really good players at Baylor and then seeing the types of skill sets that he's prioritizing, uh, he's prioritizing guys who are real deep safeties. And I, I've regurgitated that about 50 times so far this podcast, but it is a skill set that is desperately lacking. We're moving Triquez Bridges from corner to safety. Bennett Williams, who's primarily played nickel for us, is going to be starting at, at, at deep safety this year. Uh, Brian Addison, who was at one point a receiver for us, is a deep safety. Like Having guys that have that natural skill set is going to be massive value add for the Oregon staff. Well, and with Oregon uh, recently flipping receiver uh, Ashton Cozart from Oklahoma, if we're able to to beat out the Sooners now for Turner, that would be uh, <laughs> be a double gut punch to them uh, from an Oregon standpoint. So would you say if if Oregon is able to secure a commitment from Turner and then along with DeCamera, then is that is that pretty much uh, you know two and done at that position for Oregon, you think? 
Uh, I would assume the answer is yes, but here's the deal. There's always players that are worth a spot. So there's, I'm sure there's guys on the board that they will continue to recruit. And if one of those guys wants to pop for Oregon, they're going to take him. Um, it's kind of the same situation that we always run into on the offensive line. Like, yeah, we have four guys committed, but there's always that one guy that's a must-take. So I'm sure they'll continue to try to add as much talent as possible to the back half of the defense. I could see us signing five or six defensive backs total. Um, but if, in order for them to add a third safety, if it's if Turner were to choose Oregon, I think that they're going to have to be a pretty elite prospect. That makes sense. All right, so we will cover a different position group in our next episode, probably flipping back over to offense uh, as we ping pong back and forth episode by episode. Uh, shifting gears a little bit to the Pac-12 landscape right now, Pac-12 Commissioner George Klyavkov was this week on the ESPN College Football Podcast and really spoke about a number of topics, NIL, going to Congress, employee model, playoff expansion, media rights, and several other things that I would definitely encourage uh, folks to give that a listen. It was a really illuminating conversation he had on there with Heather Dinich and uh, and Rittenberg there on, the, on ESPN Podcast. So give me some takeaways, what you heard from him that stood out to you. Yeah, well, the... Interesting stuff in regards to TV was that the tier one rights are certainly going to be tier traditionals, whether it's Fox or ESPN or CBS or NBC, whoever that ends up being for the Pac-12. But they were definitely kind of foreshadowing the fact that tier two and tier three rights are likely going to be a little bit more multiple in the ways that they can be accessed, that they really are pushing for to have a streaming partner for their tier three rights in a, in a way that would allow for greater access to those games that currently doesn't exist. Uh, it was interesting to hear Kliakov talk about the fact that retaining complete ownership over the network and distribution of those lower tier rights is actually a benefit coming into this negotiation. It's something that we've talked about being a real kneecap for the PAC 12 over the course of the last contract. But if, if it can be structured correctly, I think it might be something where the Pac-12 has a little bit of extra juice to add add value to those Tier 3 rights that otherwise wouldn't exist. Yeah, I, I caught that too. And and it certainly has been a detriment um, you know, over the course of the last contract because I don't think... I think the the value of what maybe the previous commissioner thought those would turn into didn't, didn't materialize for a number of reasons, but... Uh, but yeah, now it is kind of a, an advantage to some degree. Now, how you how well Klyavkov is going to be able to capitalize on that, you know, remains to be seen. Uh, I also thought the the point about wanting to continue to produce and own, you know, the tier two and tier three um, content was an interesting one as well. You know, it seems like that kind of lends itself toward not not partnering and selling, you know, to a to a partner like like the other conferences have done, but maybe come up with a way to. It'll be interesting to see how that's structured, but I do, I do like um, what he said about the tenants. He he described three tenants of what he wanted to do going into the media rights. Which number one was obviously revenue. Number two, broad distribution, and that speaks directly to the fact that the conference does not currently enjoy broad distribution at all, particularly in the, with the Pac-12 network. Uh, and then his third tenant was flexibility, and he talked specifically about the ability to to showcase teams and players uh, in advantageous time periods. You know if if they're, you know, someone's on a Heisman run or a team is doing really well, you know, there's flexibility to put them in time spots that that they could be seen by a larger portion of the of the country. Uh, and I, and I, I like this. He used this wording, which I really liked. He said, "Content should be viewable by anyone who wants to watch it on any piece of glass connected to the internet," which was a was a cool way of of phrasing that. Yeah, and I think that kind of speaks to the transition that's currently taking place in in like broadcast media, where 
like the the biggest sporting events are still always going to be on on cable. Um, but I think we're, I think by the time the next contract comes up, cable will be less of a factor in all of this. It'll be more about streaming. So they might be able to create some relationships in this negotiation that are beneficial down the road as well. Yeah, it does seem like he's positioning it for balancing, um, you know, the now versus the future with an eye on the future as well, which obviously is very smart. And this is arena that he is very familiar with. So this is one of the reasons he was hired to do this deal and do it well and, and position the conference um, not only well currently in the in the new deal coming up, but but into the future as well. Shifting gears a little bit, another thing he talked about, which I found very interesting was, you know, his trip to to Congress to visit with some senators there and and how he and Sankey going together representing very different political portions of the country was advantageous, right? So they're able to talk to Republican senators and Democratic senators and and really representing, you know, fan bases from parts of the country that are either, you know, very very blue or very red and and how that was an advantageous. But one of the things that they he 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 brought up twice in the podcast, and he's talked about before as well, is he's very very clear about his fear, if you will, of an employee model, you know, taking hold in college sports and what that would mean to college sports as a whole, not just football, but across the line and downstream to all the other you know non revenue sports and particularly Olympic sports. What were your thoughts about his comments there? Well, it was interesting because I listened to Greg Sankey's interview with Paul Feinbaum yesterday as well, and it was it was a similar thing. Like, you're going to be losing five thousand scholars like scholarship athletes if you go to that model because, like, currently the way it's set up, and, and whether it's right or wrong, like football and basketball are subsidizing the rest of the sports. Well, if that revenue that that is being used to subsidize those sports is needed to create salary pools and to pay players and an employee model and provide benefits and all these things then the money isn't there anymore for the Olympic sports to get the scholarships that are being subsidized by football and basketball. So it, it's, it's a problematic model if you want to keep the, the wide breadth of sports that are currently available to athletes coming out of high school on a, on a scholastic level. Um, and it was also interesting that they're talking about like the United States is unique in which college athletics is the developmental feeder program for our Olympic teams. Whereas that is not the case in most countries. Most countries, they, the government subsidizes some type of, of Olympic training camp. Um, and so it's, a, it's just a, it's a question of whether, how, how this can be structured in a way, it can't remain the way it is now. It has to change, but it doesn't mean that it has to go away. So how, how does the structure change over the course of the next couple of years, whether it's through legislation, uh, kind of a restructuring of the NCAA? Like, how does this work in a way where, Players remain non-employees, receive proper financial benefits where there's a clear and regulatable structure for, for boosters and for NIL collectives in which everyone's playing on the same even playing field. You can re- maintain some level of competitive integrity without completely eliminating Olympic sports and non-revenue sports from, from college sports. Yeah, and I think one of the other things you mentioned is continuing to invest revenue in, you know, athlete health and wellness, right? Like giving back to athletes in those ways to make sure that they're taken care of, you know, on the field, off the field, mentally. And that's an area where the Pac-12 is, has definitely been a leader. And and he stressed that and, and that he wants to continue to be a leader and continue to invest in those areas and really help out athletes. One of the things he mentioned that I, I, I've always said too, is if we go to employee model, the likelihood is those athletes now are no longer taking classes. They're no longer enrolled in school, right? They're just a pro athlete, if you will. And given that 
a pretty small percentage of college athletes actually make it to the the NBA or the NFL or whatever other league you're talking about. Is that really the best thing for the other 95% to just be a pro athlete, you know, earn a couple of paychecks for a couple of years in college and then have no degree coming out of it afterwards? And, and I think he's spot on there. Yeah. Yeah. And there was, this was an issue that actually Lane Kiffin brought up during SEC media days or spring meetings that I thought was interesting too, is that the transfer portal is going to reduce graduation rates pretty substantially because a lot of kids are transferring from schools to other schools where credits don't transfer and they're being put behind from an academic standpoint. Um, I know talking from Justin Johnson, who is a medically retired Oregon offensive lineman, like you're on your four-year clock. Like when you are done with your four or your four or five years, depending on if you redshirt, you're no longer getting school paid for your undergrad is paid for anything beyond is not. And so having your academic clock messed up by all the transferring that's taking place is an unintended consequence of the freedom of movement. So there's a lot of like pretty complex issues that are all intertwined on this uh, that are going to be something that have to be looked at. I don't see the transfer portal going away. I think reducing it down to windows that make it a little bit easier to manage a roster for staffs is a good thing. But figuring out a way to make these credits transfer, I don't even know how you would possibly structure that between Power 5 institutions because uh, the academics are, are, so, are so different. I, I'm not sure that that's even possible. Yeah, I, I'm not sure it's possible either, but it, it is a concern. I think you're right. These, I think Lane nailed it on that one. Yeah, the, it's, it's going to be an interesting thing to track because I think everyone's on the same page. Like The more I listen to the SEC spring meeting stuff, the more I listen to Klyakov talk, Like there, there might be there's the main like line of demarcation is on the college football playoff. Everything else, it seems that all the commissioners, all the ADs, all the presidents are pretty much on the same page. Nobody wants an employee model. Everybody wants to maintain the Olympic and non-revenue sports. Um, everybody wants these kids to be getting the education as part of the deal. Um, and it, it makes all the sense in the world to me. I mean, in, unless you're at Alabama or Georgia and you're putting eight or nine guys in the NFL every year, most of these Power 5 programs, the vast majority, are putting one or two guys into the draft every year. And how long are those guys' careers really going to be? So the opportunity for some of these kids who otherwise wouldn't, and a, and a disproportionately minority kids, um, to get free educations is... That's something that is that it does add value. I know a lot of people say it doesn't. Again, for the top end prospect, that's a three and done guy. It doesn't add a lot of value because they're going to be making so much money playing football. It doesn't matter. But for the for the run of the mill power five guy who it red shirts his first year, stays for five years, or transfers to finish out his career, that education is is extremely valuable um, to their long term prospects. Absolutely, and I'll add one more thing where it, it feels like all these all these conferences and commissioners are aligned is the NAL guardrails, right? Everyone seems to want, give us some rules, give us the guardrails. Like let's put parameters around what is and isn't allowed in regards to NIL. And they're all, they're all seeking that. Now what, what that, what comes of that remains to be seen, but it, it feels like there's a lot of alignment there as well. Yeah. One thing Sankey said was that, cause he comes from a compliance background prior to being the, the commissioner was coaches would ask the, the AD or, or somebody in the AD's office or a compliance person a question and that person would say, hey, we'll call the NCAA. We'll have you an answer by the end of the day. Well, right now, because the state laws are different from state to state, no one's calling the NCAA. Everyone's calling state legislators. Everyone's calling their, their, their attorneys to figure out like, what, what the gray area is, where, where, what's the operable ground within the state guidelines. And so it just makes for a compliance nightmare for everybody. 
shifting gears over to an area where there is not alignment among the various uh, commissioners, which is, of course, playoff expansion. One of the things that I've noticed over over the last six months or so is that, you know, you're really seeing George Klyavkov step up into a very public role on the national scene as far as commissioners go, where it really feels like you have Sankey and Klyavkov are the two like public voices, you know, from the power five commissioner level that are that are out there speaking a lot on these subjects and and the other three obviously you know Bowlesby is retiring from the from the Big 12 but even the the other two commissioners from from the ACC and Big 10 are kind of like in the background but but George has really stepped up and he's a clear leader among that group now along with of course Sankey and and they of course have very different perspectives on both what happened with the the proposed 12-team playoff model and where they think the model should go going forward and and you're seeing both of them kind of publicly lobby and state their their different perspectives as well which has been kind of entertaining yeah it, it seems like the main holdup is that kevin warren actually the big 10 commissioner is very stuck on automatic bids um which in a 18 model i think is completely unworkable in a 12 team model you might be able to make it work i'm actually a pretty big fan of the model that initially was going to be used that got voted down by the alliance where you have six Automatic qualifiers, uh, the six highest rated power or conference champions, regardless of power five or group of five. Now, if you're the Big 12, I can see, and you're the new Big 12 commissioner, I see how you're against that. But if you're a Pac 12 champion or a uh, Big 10 champion or an ACC champion, let me know which one of those, the last one that wouldn't have made a playoff under this format. Like, very rarely is there ever even one, maybe two group of five conference champions that would be ranked higher than any of the power five champions. Uh, I would yeah, be interested I, to see what that looks like over the course of history. Uh, it seemed to me like the way, the reason I got voted down was more so to push it out to 26 when the, when Fox could vote uh, or, or could bid for some of the rights so that it's not all exclusive to ESPN, which is 100% in the big Ten's best interest because Fox dominates their media rights deal. So the, I'm sure that that's being pushed from from their media rights partners to, to delay, but I don't I don't see I don't see how auto bids are a big deal for the Big Ten in, in any any way shape form or fashion. Although it might be an issue only because the consolidation of brands for the SEC. But again, if the Big Twelve were to exp- or the Big Ten were to expand, I don't think that they would have any qualms about any of the models anymore because they would have so much brand power of their own that they wouldn't have to worry about the SEC consolidating more and more of the national media footprint. Yeah, I think the two the two holdups from a public perspective, you're right, where one of them was the auto bids and the other one was the ACC was adamant on eight teams and didn't want 12. And those were the two things that I think kind of hold it up publicly. But you're right, it all comes back to the media rights. And I actually agree with that. I think I think delaying for a few years in order to get to put this thing to market and get the most you know, the most people bidding on it is in the best interest of, of all the conferences over the long term. And having it consolidated with one media partner is is definitely not, in my opinion. Yeah, I, I think you're right. I think going back the in, a, in the in the proposed model, I don't think there ever would have been a power five champion that didn't make it because you would have had to have two group of five champions ranked ahead of you not to make it outside of 2020, which doesn't even count anyway. That's never happened. So it's it is kind of a bit of a weird thing to be worried about, <laughs> considering it's it's very very unlikely to happen. Yeah, and and again, I think I don't know how the model was structured, but auto bids. I still think that you should be seeded based on how the playoff subcommittee ranks you. 
Like why why is it like I don't think that one through six should be just the the six highest rated conference champs. Like if if number three should be Georgia and they were the runner up in the SEC, then number three should be Georgia. Like I don't understand I don't understand the need for the seeding to be tied to the auto bids. I think that they should be independent. I don't think they should be mutually exclusive. I could argue that both ways. I mean, I think the, the, the scenario you describe is pretty clear cut, right? But, it, but I think in a lot of years, there's not enough. And potentially you get into the future, right? Where maybe, maybe there's more, less dominance in one conference, right? And I think there's not enough cross-conference play to definitively say, oh, the number two or number three team in this conference we think is better than the conference champ in that conference. So I, I think there should be some value in winning your conference. And I like the way that the proposal had if to get that buy to get, which I I'm really kind of against buys anyway, but if you're going to have buys saying the buys go to conference champions, I think is a fair kind of compromise. That's fine because that's going to like most likely in most years, it'll be the top four power five champs. Anyways, are going to get the buys. But my my point is is that if Boise State wins the Mountain West and gets and is is ranked 11th in the final college football playoff rankings, they should be the 11 seed. Agreed. Agreed. Like they they shouldn't be they shouldn't be artificially put at the sixth seed because because they played in the Mountain West. You know what I mean? I would agree with that. And that and the proposal didn't have that. The proposal just said the top four have to be conference champs, but after that, it's seeded however you want. So yeah, and to me that's totally fine because I think winning your conference championship game should net you some kind of value. Now, obviously one of the power five conference champs, although we are kind of going to a power four, if we're being really honest with ourselves yep. here, yep. Um, is going to be ticked off by the fact that they aren't getting a buy and they have to play somebody week one. But the, the good news is, is you're playing a 12 seed or an 11 seed most likely. So it, it is what it is. And I, I would assume that under that model, you'd be getting a home game as well. Yeah. I think that's the, that's the, I guess the upside, the silver lining in that. So I got to play an extra game, but I get a home I get a home game now where I can make a lot of money at. So probably yeah. the coaches don't care about that as much as the ADs, but it is a little bit of a silver lining. I honestly think a lot of the posturing, like the talks of an SEC only playoff is more just airing frustrations that this didn't get done this time around. Um, but it, it was just, and it was untenable with the way that you, that Oklahoma and Texas had moved over to the SEC and kind of blindsided everybody. Um, to to move forward with so much in flux. And so letting this thing run out, letting it go to 26, where you can get additional media partners, which is good for everybody, even the SEC, it's good for them, makes the most sense to me. When that SEC-only playoff talk first came out, I was like, whoa. But then the more the more time has gone on and listening to you know what came out of the SEC spring meetings, I, I agree with you. I think it's a bargaining you know ploy. It's a, you know, hey, it's a threat. We're going to do this unless you give us what we want in the, in the next uh, playoff deal. So I, I, I think that's really, really unlikely to happen. I think Sankey is, is doing what Sankey does and throwing stuff out there, but you well, know, that would be a short sighted move on their part. I think, you know what it is. It's so currently it was It had to be unanimous. So one person could vote it down going into the future. The playoff model it has to be a majority. Well, if the alliance is an actual voting block, then the SEC, despite being the, probably the most valuable product, loses a lot of leverage at the table in regards to how this gets done. Threatening to take your ball and go home is a good way of just establishing, like, we, don't, we want you guys to know we don't need you guys. We'll just run our own playoff. If you don't want to play ball with us, then we'll just take, take the ball and go home. And so I think that's more what that was is because in the next negotiation, it has to be a majority of power five teams that are on the same page in regards to the playoff. I think that's why 
Sankey felt threatened enough to make that kind of threat. I think that moves right into our next cover, next topic here is, um, you know, that also a lot of talk in the SEC. When Oklahoma and Texas join, they go to 16 teams. What is that scheduling model going to look like? You know, the two team, the two divisions are, are going to be unworkable at that point because they're too big. And they're, the two models that are coming coming to the forefront now are either a one permanent rival with seven rotating games among the rest of the conference or three permanent rivals with six rotating games among the rest of the conference. So it's either an eight, continuing an eight-game uh, SEC schedule or moving to a nine-game SEC schedule in those two models. So in either scenario they would not have pods. Pods aren't workable for them. So it'd either be eight games or nine games with, with either one permanent rival or three permanent rivals. And both of those scenarios get them through a full home and home with the entire conference in a four-year cycle, which is what they want. Yeah, I, I don't think one in seven is even really an option. I'm sure it's being floated out there, but there's there's too many SEC rivalries that are that exist that need to be played on a yearly basis. I don't I don't see a way that... The TV partners in ESPN are going to allow them to take that away. I don't. I mean, that's even like for instance, like let's say, ten. I mean, Tennessee hasn't beaten Alabama in forever, but the TV ratings are still so good that you're not going to not have that game played every way every year if you're ESPN. They're floating it out as an option. I don't think it is. Nine games is more valuable TV product anyway, but those rivalry games on a yearly basis is even a more valuable TV product. So getting through the entire schedule in four years home and home, plus maintaining all these traditional rivalries like Georgia-Auburn, like Tennessee-Alabama, is the best of both worlds for for everybody involved. Yeah, I agree with you. I think the 1-7, the reason it's being floated out there is I think it's being pushed by some of the lower and middle tier programs in that conference who who feel like they need those four out of conference games to get to bowl eligibility or get to seven and five and they're worried about about what happens if they if they have to play an extra conference game and lose that cupcake if you will i think i think ultimately they're not the powers in that conference and they're not going to they're not going to get their way but i think this is this is the way of kind of giving them okay you want that you have to give up two rivals Danny Cannell on the on the Cover Three podcast said this well: like if you're a bottom half of the SEC team and you're losing bull eligibility because of this, you're out and you're a coach, you're against it because you're going to get fired. <laughs> like, but but ultimately, like who cares? Like it, the the TV networks don't care. the The top half of the SEC doesn't care. Uh, what, what's going to happen is probably there's going to be. The SEC is still going to be the best conference, but from a record standpoint, it's not going to appear to be as strong as it has recently when you're building four wins into your schedule every year for the most part. So I I think that if you're Vanderbilt, this makes it even harder for you to ever see a bowl game again. But if you're Alabama, like this is the best possible outcome for you. It gives you the most exposure. It gives you the most TV value. Um, and it all gives you, it also gives you your fans the most opportunities to see you play against competent teams. Yeah, I totally agree, and and I think I think you're right. That's the model that's going to win out in the end. This is just they're uh, they're going to sort it out. You know, let people talk about it, but in the end, it's going to end up three six and and nine conference games, and that'll be good because then I think every conference outside the ACC will be on a nine game conference schedule. The ACC is kind of halfway there because half their teams play Notre Dame every year as well. So I think it'll be good for college football and and as a whole to have a, kind of a little bit more equitable scheduling, if you will, conference to conference. Yeah, yeah, I think I think this is all a positive move, but undoubtedly a nine game conference schedule in the SEC is the toughest, without a doubt. 
Without a yeah, there, there's just like I was looking at some mock schedules the other day for like a team like Ole Miss in year one when Oklahoma and Texas joined, and it is brutal. I mean, you're playing five or six top fifteen programs every year, so I mean that's that's tough, but it is what it is, and the it, you, you're getting cut a big check for it, so just play the games. One more topic for today. Uh, there's another potential rule change being floated out there by the Division One Council, and that would be to lift the limit on individual official visits. So currently, a football player is allowed to officially visit up to five programs in any cycle, and they're potentially going to say, nope, no limit anymore. You can visit as many programs as you want. What do we think about that? I think this is a move that's directly tied to NIL. Like The ability to freely move and travel with the transfer portal, the ability to get paid for your name, image, and likeness. It, like the re- I think that eventually this was going to get dealt with in court as to whether or not you could limit the amount of visits a kid could take. Now, obviously, you could take an unlimited amount of unofficial visits. It just seems like the direction that college football is heading, the NCAA is actually, for once, being proactive and just saying, you know what, let's not deal with this the long way. Let's just get this taken care of now. I'm not a huge fan of it. I've always thought that five is a good number. But the problem... The problem was, is back before they changed the rule, which they did change recently, like when coaching changes happen, you were able to get your, your visits reset to those schools. Um, now that won't be a problem during coaching, the coaching carousel where a kid had used all five of his official visits in June. Um, and then a coach gets fired that they're committed to, and they need to restart their, their recruiting process last minute in, in January or, or February. So I think this is a good thing overall. I still think that you'll see the majority of kids. I don't. The vast majority of prospects don't use five official visits, so I don't think you're going to see this become a thing where kids are using twelve official visits on the regular. I think you'll see some top prospects use a few more than five, but for the most part, with the way that this recruiting process is now and how much energy and time goes into it, these kids like to cut down their lists, anyways. So. We'll see how it all plays out. I think visit fatigue will become more of a thing. Um, I don't think that the average prospect is going to be taking eight or nine visits. Yeah, I, that would be my only concern. I don't. I I'm not in the minds of these kids. I don't know what they're doing, but I I you'd hate to see a scenario where a kid just keeps dragging. Oh, I'm going to add another official visit, add another official, add another official, and and string things along. But you know, like you said, I think a lot of these kids get sick of the process anyway, and a lot of them don't even take their full five as it is. So it's probably a minimal impact um in the end i would be willing to go back and look and i'd I'd probably bet that the average oregon signee takes three yeah that that probably sounds about right i think one of the things that wasn't discussed about it is uh you know oregon ad rob mullen said that this would be a cost issue potentially is that if you have more kids coming out here that's a you know bigger budget oregon has to allocate more funds towards towards those official visits but i actually think from an oregon perspective this is a positive. Right? Oh, absolutely. Because, because, you know, the key to Oregon is getting kids to come out here, right? That's always been their challenge, especially, you know, kids from the Southeast, East Coast, you know, further away in the country. And if they only have five visits to use, Oregon hasn't always made that cut. But now if they can go six or seven, all of a sudden you get you get kids to come out and visit that haven't been willing to come in the past. That's a huge benefit. Obviously, you got to find the money to pay for it. And I get you know, uh, Mullins is the AD. That's his job. But like overall, it, it's it's a big plus for Oregon. Yeah, yeah, I agree a hundred percent with that. Just the ability to get kids that might be fringe interests to come out for free 
that maybe can't afford it for whatever financial reason. Like, if you're a school like Oregon that thrives on national recruiting, this is the best possible outcome. Like, now you can, you don't, you're not using resources your own, because I'm pretty sure this also means that schools have unlimited officials that they can give out as well. Um, do you know, is that, is that the case? I've been looking for that and I haven't seen that mentioned or not. I, so, I would know. assume that those two things would go hand in hand, especially since Rob is talking about the cost of, of all these visits. Then if you're Oregon, you could take a lot more flyers. Like if you like if you really like a kid as an athlete and you can get them on campus, take your take your shot. Because even if you hit on ten percent of the kids that otherwise wouldn't have visited, that's still one elite prospect nationally every year. So I, I think that's a that's a huge advantage for a school for schools that are a little bit more remote to the to the talent hotbeds. You got it. Anything else you want to cover today, QB? No, I think we kind of hit everything. It was a little bit of a slower week. I think things are going to pick up. Obviously, Oregon recruiting is going to pick up. Um, the Big Ten media deal should be getting announced here in the next couple weeks. Uh, so there's a there's a lot of stuff coming up that that, that will be uh, good topics for conversation. Yeah, you bet. A little bit shorter episode today, but as you said, I'm, I'm sure that won't be the case going forward as, as uh, the summer wears on and more information becomes available. So with that said, this again has been the QB11 show. I'm Doug Scott, and of course, I'm joined, have been joined by QB11. QB, thanks for, for a great show today. Yeah, thank you. And thank you to all the people that have been listening and reaching out and, and uh, giving good critical feedback so that we can make this a better product for everybody to enjoy. And uh, if anybody has ideas or uh, things that we can do to improve the show, please feel free to reach out to both myself and Doug on Twitter or in the message boards or wherever, wherever it is that you find this. So. Have a great weekend, everybody, and stay safe. Well, that's going to do it for Episode 2 of the QB11 Show. He's QB11. I'm Doug Scott, and thank you for listening.